Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Deeper Daily Podcast. I'm your host, Paul White. It's the 31st day of July. It's a new week, but it's the final day of the month, and final day of the month, of course, means essay edition. So, our journeys through the Gospel of Mark have brought us to Mark chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. This is where Judas is introduced as the betrayer. So I thought it would be a time to talk about Judas in length. So here's a couple thousand words that constitute our essay edition this month on Judas Iscariot and his betrayal of our Lord Jesus. Here it is, the essay edition for July 2023. Then Judas Iscariot. So begins the text that is the subject of this month's essay. Taken from Mark 14.10, this line is the introduction to the most infamous traitor of all time. If one wants to hurl the ultimate insult at a friend or foe, just call them a Judas. The first name is all it takes. With it is attached everything associated with backstabbing and self-aggrandizing, murderous intent, and downright betrayal. No one wants to be a Judas any more than they want to be a Hitler. Whatever his intent, his landing spot is undeniable. Well, that intent is what I would like to probe with this essay. We can't interview Judas, and the non-canonical gospel that bears his name is likely a product of late 2nd century Gnosticism with no connection to the actual disciple. But I contend that we already have enough in the gospels to make an educated guess as to what Judas was up to. And I'll try to bring light to that without doing a disservice to the obvious. So let's start there, at the obvious. Judas obviously betrayed Jesus to the chief priests. He was paid 30 pieces of silver to conveniently betray our Lord, to use the language of verse 11. A convenient betrayal indicates that this was supposed to go off without a hitch and without much fanfare, which is precisely what happened as Judas led the temple soldiers to the Garden of Gethsemane and identified Jesus by kissing him on the cheek. We also know that according to Torah, 30 pieces of silver was the price paid for a wounded slave, while the price paid for a wounded relative was whatever the parent demanded. Well, this little tidbit indicates that the price paid for Jesus was as low as the economic system could allow and that the sale was like an exchange of goods. It's not clear whether Judas considered the sum to mean that Jesus was mere property, just one more thing to be bought and sold. But Matthew's version of the story does have Judas asking them what they would offer for Jesus, and the 30 pieces of silver was the sum they produced. We also know that the chief priests are familiar with the prophetic writings, and they would certainly know of Zechariah's prophecy that God would willingly break his covenant with his people if they would agree to pay him. And the price they will pay is, you guessed it, 30 pieces of silver. This is Zechariah chapter 11, verses 10 through 12. Now, how much they believed this prophecy is unclear. Perhaps they chose it to be ironic. In any event, when Judas reconsiders, which we'll focus on a little more in a moment, He returns the silver to them, and they refuse it, choosing instead to buy the potter's field with it. In case you're wondering, buying the potter's field is precisely what Zechariah said they would do with the money. So, if it is a mere coincidence, it is the finest example of such in the history of the world. We can also be certain that Judas did come to some form of regret. 
and after taking the money back to the temple, went out to a field and hanged himself. Matthew says the chief priests used the silver to buy a field in which to bury strangers, while Acts says that Judas bought a field and killed himself in it, hanging with such severity that his bowels burst from his body. Some hyperbole is involved, but in any stretch, these facts are what we know. Further, we know that Jesus shared the Passover meal with his disciples, Judas included, and informed the room that the one who would betray him was sitting at the table. Every disciple to the man asked Jesus, Is it I? Meaning that it was not self-evident that Judas was the kind of guy that would betray Jesus. No one heard Jesus' prophecy and immediately assumed Judas, but rather they feared that they themselves might be so weak. Now what this says about their own assumptions and feelings is mere speculation, but speculation is what we're about to attempt. So let's move from what we know to what we can assume. I don't think we would have spotted a traitor within the character of Judas. Judas held the community purse, meaning that he oversaw the money for the group of disciples and for Jesus. And this little fact does not appear in the Synoptic Gospels, but the much later Gospel of John. In Mark, at the anointing in Bethany, the anger over the waste of the ointment is collective, not individual. In other words, in Mark's version, the group of disciples are upset with the waste. But in John's gospel, he singles out Judas, accusing him of stealing money from the money purse and then repeating this accusation at the Last Supper. Only John gives us the Judas that oversees the money and is also a thief. A dangerous combination at best. Is John reimagining the story, putting all the blame on Judas for various things as a sort of post-mortem interpretation of events? I'm not sure, but it does seem typical of the way Jesus would work to allow a thief to carry the money, like the ultimate symbol of trust toward an untrustworthy person. Remember, Matthew was a tax collector, so his knowledge of money and exchange rates would have exceeded all the other disciples. He would seem like an obvious choice to carry the purse, but perhaps the reputation attached to the tax collector was more than the other disciples could stand, and Judas was a safer choice. My speculation is that John only identifies Judas as a thief from the safe distance of several decades after the fact. In the moment, I imagine there was nothing unbecoming about him, at least not any more than the tempestuous Peter, the sons of thunder, James and John, or the knife-carrying zealot Simon. My assumption is that Judas betrayed Jesus to the chief priests as a way of forcing his hand. Judas, like the other disciples, thought that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah that Israel had been looking for. But their idea of Messiah was wrapped up in the centuries-old legacy of the Maccabees and their military uprising against the Babylonians. They were expecting another Jewish hammer to revolt against Rome and crush their oppressors. Jesus was surely the one because he had the pedigree of the line of David and he was obviously touched by God due to his miracle-working power. But every time he had a confrontation with the authorities, Jesus would either slip away and refuse to finish the fight, or the religious leaders would back off, just short of committing themselves to Jesus as more than a mere teacher. Judas must have grown frustrated with this cat-and-mouse game and felt that a sit-down was long overdue. 
If you could just put Jesus in the room with the chief priests, and they could even go as far as to threaten him, then maybe Jesus would finally reveal himself as the commander they all hoped he would be. Mark tells us that Judas gave the soldiers a signal that the one whom he kissed was the one they needed to arrest. This little operation took place in the Garden of Gethsemane, just east of the Kidron Valley in a stone's throw from the eastern wall of the Temple Mount. Judas knew Jesus would be here, for this was a stop they made frequently between Bethany and Jerusalem. And the need to identify Jesus with a kiss means that Jesus was not recognizable to the soldiers as any kind of special threat. But I propose that it means a little more. Judas kisses Jesus because he wants to remain in his good graces. He doesn't just point out Jesus from behind a tree and then slink away so no one knows he was involved. He wants Jesus to see him, and he wants the other disciples to know that he is the impetus for this arrest. When Jesus is cornered by the authorities and is forced to reveal his power as Messiah, Judas wants to be known as the one that made it happen. He wants a front-line position in the coming battle against Rome, and he wants to go down in history as the one that pulled back the curtain on the real Jesus. Now, I believe all of this because of the response of Judas when he learns of Jesus' conviction. Matthew 27 tells us that Judas was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver. The King James Version says that Judas repented himself. Now, much has been made of scholars as to whether or not the Greek word used here for repent means that Judas had a change of mind or he was just in remorse. The word used actually indicates both in various situations. But I think this misses a force for the trees. These arguments are made while trying to determine if Judas repented unto salvation or not. I think the fact that he just shared communion with Jesus and in his belly was the body and blood of Jesus is better grounds to argue about his personal salvation. The fact that he regrets what he did means that he did not realize what the authorities were going to do to Jesus. So what did he think was going to happen? Well, I don't think this question gets asked enough, so let me ask it again. What exactly did Judas think they were going to do to Jesus when he helped them arrest him? When did the remorse begin? Matthew says that it began when he learned that they had condemned Jesus, which makes me think that it never crossed his mind that it would get this far. He thought that Jesus would either convince them of who he was or their prodding would bring out the Jesus he always thought was inside, the leader that would foment a rebellion. Once he realized he had sold a man to his death, the guilt was more than he could take. I might be wrong in my Judas assumption, though I'm not the first to propose this theory or something similar. What I know for sure is that Judas felt so bad that suicide seemed the only way forward. He did not anticipate the resurrection, or surely he would have waited a few days to see how it all turned out. He figured he had just helped kill a peace-promoting, miracle-working, innocent man, and life was not worth living if he had to live in a world with his fellow disciples standing in judgment over him. My heart breaks for Judas in a way. He had communed with Jesus. He had tasted the bread and drank from the cup. The answer he needed for the guilt that he carried was stirring within his bowels. It is ironic that Acts mentions those bowels bursting forth at his death, like the life inside of him had to come bursting out upon his death, unable to be conquered. Judas 
had no space to truly repent and he saw no path forward. So his guilt and his shame hung him. So many today see no path forward in their guilt and condemnation. So they hang themselves on their own vices and sins. The life they need is in there waiting to be activated by faith, but it is so often wasted, unclaimed, and unlived. Please don't hang yourself on guilt and shame. You are more than your mistakes. You've been invited to the table of the Lord, so eat and drink freely. You're more valuable than you know, even if you have a list of offenses that you've committed. The 30 pieces of silver bought a field so that strangers and the poor could have a burying place, a place to rest. Christ made something beautiful come out of something tragic, and he will do the same for you. Grace to you.